Well, good morning, church. We're continuing on in our study in the book of Daniel, and I know some of you said, Pastor, it's like we're in a history class because we're covering and talking about so much that's historical that we know that happened, and we're seeing how it's fulfilling the prophecies that Daniel wrote about. Last week, we saw Alexander the Great. In Daniel's prophecy, he was the goat that took down the ram, which was the Medo-Persian Empire. But what was interesting was to hear how Alexander the Great interacted in history with the Jewish people. And if you remember the story, Alexander the Great was approaching uh, Jerusalem and a bunch of the priests had come out. They were dressed really nice. There were banners being waved and they greeted him. And Alexander told his generals, I'm going to go see them by myself. And he rode alone up to them and they met and as it unfolded, they were telling him, we know who you are because our man Daniel wrote about you hundreds of years ago. And he, you're fulfilling the prophecy. And this is before he's going to fight with the Medes and the Persians. And they're saying to him, our God says you're going to win. And it's interesting how Daniel writes about it. And then we can read the writings of Josephus and others in history. And as they explain it, you put these together and you see prophecy being fulfilled. And so we're going to continue with that. If you remember where we left off, uh, the great horn of that goat was Alexander the Great, and it's broken. And as it breaks, there's four others that rise up, and these were the four generals of Alexander. We're in chapter 8 of Daniel, and I titled last week War and Peace Part 1. This week is War and Peace Part 2. And the verse I plucked out was verse 25, he shall rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but not by human hand. Now that's where we're going to land today at the end. And this is talking about a future king. This is the little horn of the future that the Bible calls the Antichrist. That's where we're going to go. But we're starting still in history with Daniel. And I want to read to you... Um, what's going to happen here. Last week we said Alexander was a king that conquered the world and he ends up bringing peace to God's people. A king who through war brought peace to God's people. Because after they showed him, Alexander, you're in our writings, he went back, he worshiped with them and he said to them, I'm going to let you worship how you want. And he left them in peace. Even though he pillaged other places, he left them in peace. But today we're going to see a king that's the opposite. We're going to land at a king who's going to, through peace, bring war to God's people. It's a flip-flop. But let me pick up here in Daniel chapter 8, where it says, and I'm going to back up just a little bit, the goat became exceedingly great, that's Alexander, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Now, if you recall, he went as far as India, his army said, we're tired, and they came back to the lands that he had conquered, but suddenly Alexander died. He died at the age of 33, and last week we finished with this comparison of Jesus and Alexander, how they both died at 33. But let's see where this picks up. Instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven, and in history, that's exactly what happened. Alexander died, and he was replaced by four of his generals who took different parts of his kingdom. I think in my next slide, it's not, I, it's kind of, I couldn't find an unblurry one, 
But you see the colors. All, each color represents a division of his kingdom. Each general, Ptolemy took Egypt, Seleucus, the big orange area. And these generals, there was some fighting, but they settled into their regions. And this is exactly what Daniel said would happen. Now, here's where we pick up the next piece. In verse 9, it says, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now, so that takes me to the next slide, which is the rise of the little horn. Now, <clears throat> the four generals are, are ruling their areas. And Daniel says, out of one of those regions, that's what I just read, would come this little horn. It's another leader that's going to rise up. And what you're going to see through this is he's not going to be as powerful as Alexander, but he will be more cruel than he was. And that's part of what Daniel's going to show us through this, is the cruelty of this king foreshadows the cruelty of the last Gentile king in history. So this leader who comes out of, actually it was Seleucus's uh, uh, divided part, this is, can you go ahead and skip to the next slide? It's Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? We know this. We know it in history. Exactly what, what I'm going to read right here, what Daniel writes, it was a real person, just like Alexander was a real person, just like Nebuchadnezzar and the other kings, Darius that we studied in Daniel, real people. Now, go back again, and I want you to see all the things. This is what he's going to say about him. I'm going to read through it, and I want you to follow along. They're on the slide there, but it says, he grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great. That's the third time that he's talked about how great he became. Even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Now let me just stop there because what I did is I just read to you everything that Daniel said this little horn was going to do that in history we can read about what Antiochus did. And history says he grew great in territory. He became ambitious and he began to conquer and bring land underneath his control. But he was thwarted by the Romans. The Romans were the next superpower, not yet fully grown. They, they're going to they're gonna take over everything, but not yet. Antiochus, is, his empire is growing, but he's thwarted by them. And history records that when he lost to the Romans, that he turned his attention back to Jerusalem, and he went back to the Holy Land of the Jews and ravaged them. He had a hatred for the Jews. Now just keep that in your mind because that's part of what Daniel is going to lay out here is that, that the last Gentile king who this little horn, he calls him the little horn. Remember earlier in Daniel, he called the last Gentile king a little horn too. The last little horn will have a hatred for the Jews as well. Now, he marched towards Jerusalem and then Daniel lays out everything that happens in the military campaign, campaigns, what we, what we find out is that he killed 40,000 Jews in battle, but then he enslaved 80,000. And 
he took them and put them up for sale. Other leaders came with, with the intent of, I can buy a slice of this pie, this, this conquered people, bring them back, and they can be a, a, a slave group within our empire. And he sold them to the highest bidder. That was one of what he did, that one of the things that he did in his conquering of the Jews. Now, perhaps I should just also say that his name, Antiochus Epiphanes, means God manifest. And as Daniel is laying this out, he says, not only persecution of the Jews, the, the host of heaven, as Daniel says, but he is as great as, he will make himself as great as the prince of the host. Now, as you read through that, the host is talk, referring to God's people in that sanctuary, in that holy land, the glorious land. It says he went this way, he went that way, and he went towards the glorious land, and the hosts who live in that land. And he sets himself up to be as great as their God. He deifies himself. He says, my name is Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. And so we see Antiochus fulfilling what Daniel wrote about. And Here's what he does to the Jewish people. Burnt offering taken away. The place of his sanctuary is overthrown. The host will be given over and the burnt offerings, because of a transgression, truth will be thrown to the ground and Antiochus, or this little horn, will be able to act and prosper. They're not going to be able to stop him. And what he, what he is determined to do in his mind, he's going to do it and unfold it. Now, it's one thing to subjugate a people. It's another thing to say, I'm going to wipe their culture off the face of the earth. I am going to take away, they cannot worship. I'm going to desecrate their holy places. I'm going to take their holy book and try to eradicate it. Burn as many copies that you can find. That's his determination. Now, I pulled one quote out of some of my reading on all this. And it says this, to kill the Jews was one thing, but to destroy their faith was another. Antiochus decided to substitute Greek worship and culture for the Jewish religion. Instead of the Jewish feast of the tabernacles, he brought into the temple the feast of Bacchanalia, worshiping Bacchus, the god of pleasure and wine. He forbade the observance of the Sabbath and the reading of the scripture, even burning every copy of the Torah that he could find, the Jews in the city were forbidden to practice anything Jewish upon penalty of death. Stories can be read about the level of cruelty he had to God's people. One story, a woman said, I'm going to, I can't give up my identity. I can't give up who I am, my culture, my faith. And one of the things that they did was they circumcised their sons. So she did that. She circumcised her sons despite the law that says you couldn't. Antiochus found out about it. Took her babies from her. Cut the tongues out. Killed them. Cut the tongues out. Now this one, she actually, tongues is a different one. This one killed the babies and hung them around her. Marched her through the city up to the highest precipice. Tossed her off. So she plummeted to her death. Tongues was a different one. Tongues was another story that I read about where they cut the tongues out of the, the sons of this woman and hung the tongues around her and then 
burned alive all her children in front of her before, she mur- before they murdered her. And you hear these stories and you say, wow, somebody in the uh, first service said, whoa, Pastor Kevin, you went dark fast. And I said, well, I'm trying to convey to you the level of cruelty. And there's a, there's a, there's, there's a reason for it because the level of cruelty that will come in the future will be greater than this. Now, I can remember during the pandemic, maybe you, like me, had some extra time to binge watch something, Netflix or a movie. We were all stuck in our houses. And I found out from my sons, and I often talk about how I love war history, that uh, there was a movie that they had not seen, Schindler's List. And I'm like, you guys got to watch that movie because I want you to know. Part of me is like, I want you to know this happened in history because we don't ever want things like this to be repeated, right? And we watched Schindler's List. Now, raise your hand if you've seen that movie. You've seen that movie? That movie, for me, that movie's really hard to watch. I get emotional when I watch it because there's the, the, they do a good job of depicting the reality of the cruelty to the Jews. There are things that happen and you're just like, ah, oh, ah. Oh. And, and now I just want you to, uh, the reason I'm telling you that is I, I, I'm bringing you back to Daniel is dreaming these things. Have you ever had a dream and you woke up and you were like, whoa, that felt like it was real. And in the dream, you were either like, you were really afraid of something and you woke up and you felt that fear. Daniel is being thrust into this level of cruelty that he's seeing and it's going to draw and elicit out of him strong emotions. That's part of why I'm telling you the stories. I can't put you into a dream, but I could tell you some of the stories of what happened. The level of cruelty. Now, um, as you read through that, you get to the end of that long quote where he's talking about all these things. He lifted himself up as great as the prince of the host. That's God. The regular burnt offerings are taken away. He said, you can't do your worship sanctuary, overthrown. And then he, he says this, um, I heard a holy one speaking. This is verse 13. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? Daniel's like this. He's like, this, I'm, this is heavy on me. And his thought is, how long is this? He's thinking, he's hearing this conversation. How long? Daniel wants to know. And there's an answer that's going to be given. But before I give you that answer, there are, there are a couple things he said. Specifically, how long? Basically, the temple uh, is given over. But he uses this phrase. So there's, there's the regular burnt offering. You can't do that anymore. We can't, do, we can't practice our faith. But the transgression that makes desolate. Now, that's an interesting phrase. We haven't come across that in Daniel yet. We're going to come across it again in chapter 9. But I'm going to tell you what it means. It's referring to the desecration of the most holy peace to their religion. In the Jewish faith, you had this room, the Holy of Holies. And in that room, there was the altar. And the priest, it was all uh, confined. No one could go in there but the high priest. You couldn't, it was like, it was symbolically like going before, the, before God in his throne room in heaven. And in, in, in the Old Testament, you can read places where God filled that room and it says the Shekinah glory of God was coming from there. You could see that God was there. 
And there's another time where, where God left it. Because of their sinfulness, he leaves them. But this is the most holiest. And that, that phrase, the transgression that makes desolate. In other places, they say the abomination of desolation. And that is where a Gentile comes in and brings a pig and sacrifices it on that altar as, as a means of, of, of making it unholy, ritually unclean. And, and Antiochus did that. Antiochus brought a sow into that holiest place, slit the throat of the pig, and took the blood of the pig all over the place, covering it all over what was considered holy and clean to them. That's how much he hated the Jews. He wanted to, to desecrate what was their most holy. And so in that, I give you that little piece, because in that, he's saying, how long? How long are these things? I mean, they're desecrated the most holy. We can't practice our faith. We can't make sacrifices. Our sanctuary is occupied. There's Gentile God worship going on, other gods. And then the answer comes, and it says this. <clears throat> and he said to me, because he asked, how long? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, he's given you a time here, and make note of that, because in the second part of this message, there's going to be no time given. Right now, there's a time, because this is an actual event, a real person that they're pointing towards going to happen, and it happened. And Antiochus, we know when he died. If you go back 2,300 evenings and mornings, people have done the math, it's approximately when he began to lay siege to their faith as a people. And, and he's giving an answer to Daniel. Basically, this won't go on forever. There's only a time, and it has an end. And he says that to him. Okay? But I want to tell you what happened with this. Antiochus Epiphanes, um, as, as his attempt spread out all through, through the region to destroy their faith, a story about a priest named Matthias who, who, who was loyal to his faith and his culture, didn't like what was going on, and he witnessed one of Antiochus's uh, leaders came in and at, at, at that area he was living said, you got to bow down and worship this God, a false God in Math Matthias's eyes, right? And a Jew came along and the Jew submitted and, and worshiped, which Jews are not supposed to do. In the book of Daniel, we saw them get, get cast into the, to the fiery furnace to stand up for their faith. This Jew was like, I'll bow down and worship. It enraged Matthias. Matthias grabbed a sword and slew both the Jew and that Gentile leader who was there commanding it. And that was the beginning of the Maccabean revolt. And this is interesting because it happened in history. Now, I wanted to show you this. A friend of mine here that I have coffee with often, he's a Catholic guy, and I told him, I don't have a Catholic Bible in my library. I have, I have a lot. I have a Mormon Bible. I have, I have a bunch of all, I, a Quran. And I, I realized I don't have a Catholic Bible. He brought me this. He brought this. 
And I looked, I already know a lot about the Catholic Bible, but I didn't have one. If you turn to the very middle of this, there are two books in this Bible that are not in the Bible that I teach from. And the two books in this one that I'm referring to are 1 Maccabees and 2 Maccabees. And they are a written account of the very thing I'm describing, the Maccabean revolt, where Matthias started this, but he was an old guy, so he couldn't really carry the torch of a, of a, of a, of a revolt, but his son could, and his son was called Judas the Hammer, Judas Maccabees, and he led this revolt that in the end defeats uh, Antiochus's reign and reinstitutes their faith and cleanses the temple and begins to rebuild it back to the temple that would exist when Christ came. Now, he says, uh, 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, just a side note, I want to say this because someone will ask me this. Pastor, well, how come this Bible has two books in it you're referring to that are not in this? And, and I want to point out that those books were written and we had them in hand at the time that Paul was alive, that Peter was alive, the apostles, the early church fathers were alive, and the early church, they, they, they all had the books of the Old Testament, and they began, to, Paul's letters began to come in. There was a time where they, they, the church corporately existed as one church, and they said, these are the books that are the canon. These belong in the Bible. These do not. That doesn't mean the ones that we're saying that don't are all totally false. They, they have some value still, but they're not inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and belonging in Scripture. So I wanted to put that out there. That's why the decision was made that the Mac, at least the two books I'm referring to, that they don't belong in the Bible. But later... When the church split and we have the Protestant movement and now you begin to have the Catholic church and the Protestant churches, the Catholic church then decided to add them back in. So there was a time where the Catholic church, the Bible that, we, that I have, it was the same, but they added more books back in. I give that to you as, as part of as canonical history, actually, of how we got our Bible. And, and I think it fits here because actually... Everything Daniel's writing about in the Maccabean Revolt, there's, there, there, there are things written in those books that fit in with what I'm talking about. That it was a real thing that happened, the Maccabean Revolt and the defeat of Antiochus. Now let me pause on Antiochus. I'm going to come back to him in a second because what I want to do is take you to the next thing that Daniel's going to talk about. Because he begins to say in verse 15, I sought to understand it. I want to understand all this. And the next thing that comes out, I read to you a couple of these verses last week because they give us the identity of all of this. In verse 20, it says, the ram that you saw with the two horns, that's the kings of Media and Persia. The goat is the king of Greece. And, and, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. That's Alexander. Verse 22, as for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. That's, I just described that. The four generals rose up, but none of them had equal power to what Alexander had, what Daniel described. Now, um, he says this, at, at, And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit 
a king of bold face. Pause. Now he's pointing us farther down the line in history to the last Gentile king. And the descriptions I'm about to give you are descriptions of the final Gentile king, the Antichrist. Now, I know we have people who were not here in the earlier parts of our study of Daniel. So let me see my next slide. I'm going to take you back to this. You might remember this. This was the story I told about <clears throat> when we went on a trip. I'll give you the short version because a lot of you heard this. We went on a trip to see Crater Lake on top of this mountain in Oregon. It was me, it was my th uh, wife, and my three uh, older sons. And we're driving. And the boys are like, how far is this trip? And we're driving through these beautiful forests. And then you see the mountain. And we, we, we heard about the mountain. It was described to us. And we saw the mountain and fit the description, right? Snow on top, there's trees, it's tall and big. And it's in this direction. And we were doing it. And we're there. Hey, guys, we're almost there. We get all the way up close. The, go the boys are excited because the trip's almost over. We're going to go up the mountain and see the lake and play in the snow. And lo and behold, here, like, I'm going to get close. We got close. We started to go around the mountain. The road went around the mountain, and that was not the mountain. The mountain we saw was not Crater Lake Mountain. When we came around, we saw another mountain farther away down the road. That was the real Crater Lake Mountain. That is like prophecy. Oftentimes in prophecy, it's talking about something that's in close proximity to you. And a lot of it fits, actually. And you get up close to it, but in the, as, as time runs on, it goes like this. And you go, ah, actually, what he was talking about, that prophet, it's farther down. And it's a little bigger and a little better. That's what's going to happen here. He is now going around and talking about the mountain farther down the road. And that is the Antichrist. And let me tell you what he says about him. I'm going to read through these. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does. And destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken but by no human hand. Now let me pause and explore some of these things that are being saying. This is the final Gentile king. He will succeed in what he does. He will rise up against the prince of princes, which is Christ. And we've already read about how he will not be killed by any human hand. Out of Thessalonians, I read to you, Jesus appears. There's the Antichrist, and he speaks and destroys him. Now, as I walk through all of them, it says he's a... He's a bold face. And we've, we've learned in our other passages on the Antichrist that he is a man that will stand out. You walk into a room full of a lot of people, even great people, he stands out amongst the great. He is a man of reputation. It says he will understand riddles. Some of your translations actually might say dark sentences instead of riddles. And what is being said about him, tying into even 
earlier what Daniel said about him is he can solve problems. He will solve problems in the world where we're going, how are we going to fix this? What are we going to do? But adding in the interpretation, dark sentences here, some writers and scholars believe that he will be into the occult. And we know that he will be empowered by Satan. So that's not hard to believe that it's possibility. It says he will have great power. Revelation 13, 2 says that the dragon gave to the Antichrist his power. He does mighty works and does great things and speaks boldly, and he is infused and empowered by Satan himself. He says he will cause fearful destruction with success. The world will wonder at the destructiveness that he brings. Now, <clears throat> you know, you read, like, just as an example, the, how fierce the fighting is at the end. In, in the Battle of Armageddon, it's described that the, the bloodshed and the carnage was so bad that the blood and the carnage came up as high as the neck of a horse. That's how bad it was in this particular valley where the battle is fought. By cunning, he makes deceit prosper. Now, that's what Daniel wrote. I read it in the King James, the word cunning, he uses the word peace. Through peace, he makes deceit prosper. Now, I have not said this yet in the Daniel series. I have never used the words tribulation. But that's part of the end. There's a tribulation. And the Bible says this tribulation is seven years. The first three and a half, it's a tribulation. The second three and a half is a great tribulation. And what happens in this is that, and this is why I've called him the Antichrist, the Lion King, the L-I-E apostrophe N King, because he's deceitful, he's good with his words, but the, but the, 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 the crown jewel of his deceit is that he will make peace with Israel. Now just think about that. That is like the highest bar you almost can set for accomplishment. Peace in the Middle East, right? I mean, Miss USA, you, if you're going to be Miss USA, well, what, would you, what would you want to see accomplished with your reign? I want to bring peace in the Middle East. I mean, it just makes them look, you know, really high. Peace in the Middle East. Can't be done. Don't you see what happens over there? The Arabs hate the Jews. There's fighting going on all the time. They're intermixed. You can't bring peace in the Middle East. And yet that is what the, one of the crown jewels of what the Antichrist will do. And that's why I say people will wonder at what he has done. He will come in and he will, he will make a peace treaty that will, will settle things down there. But he will only do it. Look, if you're a leader who is infused with satanic power, you do not care about peace for the Jews. And he will break that peace. And that's what the Bible says. He makes a peace treaty and breaks it. It says self-glory, surprise attacks. We know in Revelation that he will set himself up in the temple of the Jews. In their faith, he will, he will raise himself up as I am the God. 
Now, if I turn to Thessalonians, just to, to I'm trying to, to pull some of the New Testament in. You see, they're writing about the Antichrist. This is part of why I know Antiochus can't be the total fulfillment. It's partly because in the New Testament, they're still writing about him. He's still going to come. But in Thessalonians, it says, he's writing about the Antichrist. Paul says, Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Every faith of the world, he's going to come against and somehow bring them together and make himself to God. Then goes on to say, for the mystery of the lawless one is already at work. That's the Antichrist. And then he says, and the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all powers and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. I'm just giving you descriptions of him that tie back to Daniel. Daniel was saying this about him. Paul said he will be infused with satanic power to do wonders before the eyes of people. This is Antichrist. But then it comes and it says, here, how does it end? Remember how I told you prophecy alarms us, but prophecy also reassures us because he always brings us back to the end. And he says this, he says, the, he shall be broken in verse 25, but by no human hand, no human hand. And that's one of the reasons I took it to Thessalonians where, where it talks about Christ returning and how it's Christ that defeats him. Now, we kind of get to this point, and I'm always like, well, you know, what's the point? What's the point? And let me see my next slide. I think what I, I, think what I did was I just put the, Daniel's response up here. And you can read it with me, right? This is Daniel's response. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Now, I want you to think about what I said earlier about being drawn into a movie that has a lot of, of powerful meaning to it and history where we're looking at that going, ah, wow, and I just, I can hardly watch it. Daniel's seeing not something of the past, but something of the future and not something about other people, but something about his people. And this is his response. I'm overcome. I mean, even me, I'm not Jewish, but when I look at prophecy, I'm overcome by it, by what it talks about with the Jewish people. And then, but guess what? You still got to serve where God has put you. This dream that I'm giving you, it happens in the first half of the book when, when all of the transition of kings and kingdoms is going on, when, when they're saying you got to bow down, when I'm going to throw you in a furnace, when I got to change your name, all of that's going on and you're still serving the king. Remember Daniel's reputation? Daniel's reputation was excellent. It, over and over again said he had an excellent spirit. People respected him. He won people over with his spirit and how he did his job. And yet behind that, you're seeing that he was troubled by what God, the future that God showed him. Yet he still did the work that God gave him. And when we study God's word, it can be overwhelming, but we got to keep doing the job God's given us. And he was still appalled, still appalled. There's an aspect of evil that should appall you. Sometimes Christians, as we live in culture, we become desensitized. 
But remember we said, from the New Testament, John wrote, the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world. And we're going to see that in the next chapter. In one of our, we're going to see exactly what is meant by that. He's not physically known. Who? Maybe not even present. Certainly not the 2,000 year history of the church. But the spirit of him is already working, drawing Christians out of the church, John said. There is a presence of things that stand against God in the world that should be appalling to us. And if they're not, it can be a barometer of your faith. Now, I'm going to go back to Antiochus. I told you I'd go back, right? Because he's, he's a type. He's like a foreshadow. He was a reality, but he's also telling you the cruelty of this man, the cruelty of that man who's coming, and it's worse. And you know what? That man is, he won't be defeated by any human hand. Do you know what happened to Antiochus? He actually said, I'm going to make this like a, like, a, like a burial place. He hated the Jews so much, and he amped it up, but then he got sick with some type of sickness, disease. And what was written about him was it, it ravaged his body so bad that he stank to high heaven. People couldn't be around him. He smelled horrible. And they reached a point where he couldn't stand the smell of himself. And he said, and he admitted, he thought his sufferings were linked to his attack on God's people, the Jews. But he died. But Judas Maccabees, the leader of the revolt, did not kill him. A warrior did not kill him. A fighter, a soldier, he did not die by a human hand. Now, when he died and the Maccabean revolt succeeded, Judas Maccabees came in and cleansed the temple. And what the story about it is he came in and because, you know, in war there's, there's uh, famine and supplies are low, they couldn't find the kind of oil they needed that they would use in a cleansing aspect to the temple. And so they lit, they lit the candle and, and the oil of that candle, they said, we don't have enough. Well, let, Judas, let's, just, let's just light it. And so they lit it, and somehow that oil that shouldn't have lasted, lasted the period of time they needed to cleanse the temple. And he began to cleanse the temple. And by the way, there's a feast that the Jews celebrate today that points back to that. And the candles that they light in that feast point back to that moment in time, and that is what a menorah is. And every December they celebrate uh, the Feast of Dedication, where they dedicated back the holiness of, the, of their faith in that temple. That's interesting history. All the way back to Judas Maccabees. That's when the menorah thing comes out of. That's when Hanukkah comes out of. Fast forward all the way to today, where now we have Adam Sandler writing songs about it, right? It's pop culture. See if you, you know. But, there's another story about a Jew who lived behind the Iron Curtain and was being persecuted. And the persecutor came to that Jew and said, what are you going to do if we keep persecuting your people? You're spread out through Europe. We're coming after you. What are you going to do? And that Jew said to him, we'll probably end up having a feast. He said, what do you mean? 
He said, well, don't you know the history of the Jews? Every time someone persecutes us and tries to wipe us out, we end up having a feast. And that is true. And that's kind of the thing I want to land on to give you something about God's dedication to his people. I mean, we could start with Pharaoh. Pharaoh enslaved them. Don't you know the story of Passover? They celebrate Passover as overcoming the Egyptians and their oppression. Then we have Haman and Esther, the story of Esther. They have the Feast of Purim to celebrate their overcoming that time in history where Haman had actually put a law out that said on this day, it's legal to kill a Jew. Imagine a law like that. If someone had a law that said, hey, next week on this day, you're allowed to shoot anybody of this race. What? That happened. And they tried to wipe the Jews out and it failed. And they have a feast now to celebrate that failure. Then we have Antiochus. Antiochus um, he went after the Jews, the feast of dedication. And uh, it tells you that God is dedicated to his people. Now, there's another thing I have not told you throughout, throughout this. The book of Daniel is written in the language, it's Aramaic, because he lived in Babylon. And he wrote it then. And he wrote it there, except for chapter 8. Chapter 8 is written in Hebrew the language of his people. And God is taking you back to, these are my people. And Daniel is worried about his people. And he comes and he gives them the dream and, and he writes it in his language because he's a God that does not forget his people. And even though I'm showing you these pictures in history where people are going to try to wipe you out, they're going to come after you, they're going to fail because you're my people. And so we kind of land with this. We see what happened with the oil and the dedication, the defeat of Antiochus. We see the feasts that come out of attempts to end God's people. And we see this section written in Hebrew landing us on this point of the character of God. And we get into to ch chapter 9 because this is... It's overwhelming. It's appalling. But we still got to do our work. Well, how do we deal with it then? And, and we're going to see a picture. One of the ways he deals with it is with his prayer life and his inner life and how he comes to God in praying for his people. But God's people on the planet today is the church. And if you're a Jew and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're a Messianic Jew, you're part of God's people in the church. And that's why, I've been, that's why I gave you the whole part of all of this narrative that there's a point where God's going to come and take his people, the church, out. And then he will go back to the Jews and he will fulfill some of the promises that he made in the Old Testament to his people after the church is gone because there will be a revival at the end where Jews as a nation will come back and say, you know what, he is our God and that is the time period where the Antichrist will come and he will come after them. But God is faithful. And he's faithful to us in the church in the same way that history gives us accounts of trying to destroy and wipe out Jews. Satan hates the church. You see it in Acts. It starts, the first great persecutor is Paul. And God comes and says, I'm going to take him and make him my own. And now he is a pillar of the church. 
going to write my, my, my works through him. And yet he persecuted the church. The church, we are fortunate to live where we're not persecuted like they were in Acts, but in parts of the world the church is. And it should be alarming to us. It should be appalling to us. If I could sit here and give you statistics of parts of the world where the church is persecuted and people die for their faith. But yet God is faithful. And in the end, He will call His church out. And He will turn back and show His faithfulness to the nation of Israel and the promises He's made because He's a faithful God. Thank you, Lord, for this story where we get to read about history that happened as you foretold it and history yet to happen that you're telling us about. And may we take away from this the fact that you are God who sits on His throne through it all. Because the nation of Israel, as they were exiled in Babylon, and seeing the turnover of kingdoms probably felt like they were a forgotten people. And yet Daniel, in close to it all, the thing he took out of it is that there is a God in heaven sitting on His throne and He still has a plan and has not forgotten us. And we, as a church... Sometimes we can be overwhelmed. Culture is, is deconstructing Christians today, drawing us in. We become desensitized to things that should maybe be appalling to us. And we're overwhelmed. And yet, in that same way, Lord, you still sit on your throne. You're still faithful to us. And if we put our faith in your word and cleanse, cleanse tightly to your hands and seek you out in prayer. You are a God who is faithful to us. And we, we should take that from Daniel and learn it from him and his time in history. It can apply to us. We lift this up in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll finish as we worship together.